would like us to look this evening at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The purpose of Hebrews chapter 11 is the whole purpose of encouragement. These Christians to whom the apostle is writing had known better days in terms of God's blessing. Some were finding the going hard, very hard, and they were in danger of slipping back, of backsliding. And so there is this reminder here, particularly in Hebrews 11, of the nature of true saving faith and of what it means to live by that faith and what has been accomplished by those who have lived by faith. And so attention is drawn to the saints, the believers of the Old Testament. And uh, this evening we look at one of those believers, one of those saints of the Old Testament, namely Enoch. Now what great encouragement can we take from Enoch? I want to suggest that the great encouragement that we take from Enoch, and indeed, in measure, uh, the challenge that we take from Enoch, is that the possession of true saving faith means the possibility of intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. And I want to suggest that that is very relevant for us. In evangelicalism today, there is, generally speaking, a great dearth of intimacy with God. There is a vast difference between knowing the Bible, which is a very good thing, but there's a vast difference between knowing the Bible and knowing God. The one does not automatically mean the other. The one should certainly lead to the other, and that should be our concern. It was the concern of our forefathers who spoke of truth uh, ascending to the heart, which doesn't seem to make sense on first listening to that statement. We receive truth in the mind, well, surely... We should speak of truth descending to the heart as the heart is below the brain. But they knew exactly what they were saying. What they were saying was that heart knowledge is far superior to head knowledge. And if head knowledge does not lead to heart knowledge, well then it is useless, it puffs up, it is highly dangerous. And so that's what we are concerned about. 
a heart knowledge of the truth, intimacy with the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Now we have to deal with a slight textual difficulty first before we go any further. We see here in verse 5 of Hebrews 11 with regard to Enoch, we are told that he pleased God. He pleased God, but then when we look at his history or some of his history in Genesis chapter 5 and in verse 24, we have the statement that Enoch walked with God. Not Enoch pleased God, but Enoch walked with God. How do we account for the difference? Well, the apostle to the Hebrews is quoting from Genesis 5 with regard to Enoch, but he is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And the Greek directly translates that Enoch pleased God. The Hebrew directly translates that, Hebrew, uh, that uh, Enoch walked with God. The meaning is the same. So we must put these two statements together and ask, well, what exactly is being said? Enoch pleased God. Enoch walked with God. They mean the same. I suggest that we can put them together in this way, that Enoch, in his consistent living by faith, was pleasing to God. And so God drew near to him. And Enoch knew consequently what it was to walk with God, to have this intimacy with God, to live in conscious, heartfelt fellowship and communion with God. We want to put it in New Testament terms. Well, then, he knew uh, what it was uh, to have William Williams' question uh, answered, or William Williams' request answered. Tell me thou art mine, O Saviour. Grant me an assurance clear. Banish all my dark misgivings, still my doubting, calm my fears. O my soul within me yearneth now to hear thy voice divine. So shall grief be gone forever and despair no more be mine. Uh, Enoch knew something of the answer uh, to that uh, request. He knew what it was to be told, that he was loved of God. And he knew this intimacy with God. And so by faith, as a consequence of the exercise of faith in daily living, Enoch knew this intimacy with God, and he pleased God. And whatever our circumstances and whatever the state of the church, I want to underline that this is wonderfully possible. Do you realize that this is possible? Do you know intimacy with God? Do you know it's possible for you? if you have true saving faith, if you're a real Christian here this evening. It can be known. It can be lost. It can be regained. I suppose one of the classic examples of that from church, Welsh church history, would be from the life of the great Baptist preacher Christmas Evans, 
mightily used of God in uh, times of revival ministry, mainly in Anglesey, but also elsewhere, and also here at the end of his life in South Wales. Uh, but at one point in his ministry, he got caught up with false teaching, the kind of false teaching uh, which said that, that faith was simply a matter of mental assent. It was simply a matter of the mind. Uh, the heart wasn't involved. It was simply a matter of mental assent. And uh, amazingly, surprisingly, as I say, uh, Christmas Evans got caught up with this and it brought a terrible deadness uh, to his spiritual life and, uh, and in measure also for a period to his ministry. But one day he was walking in North Wales between uh, McCunthleth and Dogethly and uh, mourning the state that he was in spiritually. And wonderfully, he found himself drawn aside into, into a gateway there uh, on the road. And God wonderfully met with him anew and afresh and poured forth his love, the love of Christ, into his heart. So again, his heart is overflowing with the love of Christ and he was renewed in the sense of uh, a felt relationship with God, renewed again in the sense of intimacy with God through Christ by the Spirit and he returned to his ministry and another season of revival broke out and hundreds were wonderfully uh, converted. Well, that is so wonderfully possible. Now, as a consequence of his intimacy with God by faith, Enoch was favoured in an almost unique way. I say almost unique because, of course, we know uh, it happened also to Elijah. Uh, both men left this world without having to pass the veil of death, without having to die. They entered heaven without having to face death. That was how Enoch was blessed. That's how Elijah had been favoured, but that's how Enoch also was wonderfully favoured. It was God's reward to him uh, because he was pleasing to God, because he lived a consistent godly life, and God blessed him in that way and favoured him in that way and rewarded him in that way. Uh, as old John Trapp once put it, he did not change uh, his company, he simply changed his place. God rewards faithfulness. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that there is any promise that we can plead and hang on to uh, that says to us that we can avoid death. There is no such promise. Uh, but nevertheless, God rewards faithfulness. There are great and precious promises I quoted one to begin the service. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There is a filling, a wonderful and glorious filling for those who are seeking to walk consistently, for those who are seeking a close walk with God. There is a glorious filling, the fullness of God's love, the fullness of God's joy, the fullness of God's peace, the sense of God's presence and power with you, intimacy with God. That's how God rewards his children. He delights to give good gifts to his children. 
by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, making the Lord Jesus Christ more and more real and precious to us. Well, now, let's ask a question with regard to this whole matter of intimacy with God and the fact that Enoch knew it. What do we know about Enoch? What do we know about Enoch? Well, we don't know a great deal about him. We have about eight verses in the Bible concerning him. We know that his father's name was Jared, who lived to a great age. And that Enoch himself uh, was the father of Methuselah, who lived seven years longer than Jared and became the longest living man in history, living for almost 1,000 years. Enoch himself had a comparatively short life, 365 years. When was Enoch uh, converted? Well, we cannot be dogmatic, but there is, there is a hint, I suggest, in, in Genesis 5 as to when it may well have happened. In Genesis 5, in verses 21 and 22, we read, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and begot sons and daughters. Was uh, the birth of a son an overwhelming sense of God's goodness to Enoch, which led him to repentance. That is the whole purpose of God's goodness. And it could well be the case. And the, the birth of a son could well have been the time when Enoch turned to God in true repentance and faith and was wonderfully converted. From that point on, we are told that he walked with God. Well, Enoch was not great by this world's standards, though some of his uh, contemporaries were very great in the eyes of the world. Another Enoch, another person by the name of Enoch, a son of Canaan, had a city named after him. And then Cain's great, 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 great grandsons were pioneers in all manner of things. We read about them in Genesis 4 and uh, verses 19 to 22. Genesis 4 and verses 19 to 22. Then uh, Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. Uh, and as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. So here were pioneers in the rearing of husbandry and livestock. Pioneers uh, in, in, and inventors in, 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 in music. Pioneers and inventors in all kinds of craftsmanship. Great men, as far as this world is concerned. But it seems 
ungodly. But nevertheless, we cannot help but note the common grace of God, his kindness and mercy, in that the ungodly can be extremely useful and useful in this world, and indeed prosper greatly. And that can be a problem to the godly. And so Enoch would have faced a situation in which he saw the ungodly prosper. He would have been faced with that situation. And that was often a problem in the Old Testament, and it's still a problem today for Christians. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Psalm 73, the psalmist confesses, I was, I was envious at the prosperity of the wicked. My, my feet had well nigh slipped. I, I almost gave up. I almost abandoned the faith when I saw the prosperity of the wicked and the godly in such trouble at times and, and the wicked having such easy lives. Well, it's always a problem for the godly, for the Christian. It's always a challenge to faith. Well, Enoch knew it. And Enoch resisted the temptation to unbelief. He continued faithful. But we also know, with regard to Enoch, that uh, in the time of Enoch's great-great-grandfather, Enosh, there was a spiritual awakening. The first such awakening in history. We read about it in Genesis 4, verse uh, 26. Uh, and Adam knew, uh, sorry, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now Jonathan, the great Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian and philosopher, in his book, The History of Redemption, argues very strongly that these words mean far more than simply men began to pray and worship. For we know that from Cain and Abel that worship was already a regular practice. Rather, the words there at the end of Genesis 4 indicate a general calling upon God. In other words, an awakening. We might be tempted to say revival. And uh, Enoch undoubtedly knew people who had been much closer in time and experience to this spiritual awakening. And uh, it's not surely beyond the realms of possibility that that uh, had had a profound influence upon him and caused him to seek in faith for a greater dimension of God's presence and power in his life. Uh, that's uh, uh, what invariably happens, isn't it? If, uh, if we know people who have live through times of revival and they're able to spend time with them, then uh, their influence somehow rubs off very often and, 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 and we have a different uh, view of what is possible very often uh, for us as Christians. 
and particularly in this whole realm of intimacy with God. So in other words, I'm suggesting that it's likely that he used his own spiritual heritage in the right way. And so must we value church history. Next to the reading of the Bible, read church history, particularly the history of revival. Read good biography, especially the biography and autobiography of those who have lived through revival and been used in revival. It will thrill your soul. It will encourage you. It will challenge you. We know further that the days of Enoch, and we can be more dogmatic here, were days of spiritual decline. The world was moving towards that state of wickedness that brought the terrible judgment of the flood in the time of Noah. And Enoch, we know, stood boldly against the decline. We are told that uh, in Jude, the letter of Jude, and in verse 14, right at the end of the New Testament, the letter of Jude, and verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, that's about uh, the ungodly and false teachers and so on, saying, behold, the Lord comes with tens, thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch actually prophesied in the Spirit concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment day. Now, how much he understood of what he was actually prophesying, how much he saw spiritually of what he was actually prophesying, well, we cannot say, but he did prophesy concerning the final judgment when Jesus comes. He was certainly aware of that judgment. He was aware of God's judgment upon sin. And by faith, he stood against the tide of wickedness in his day and reminded men of that final judgment. So there are at least these three factors in the exercise of faith that led Enoch into intimacy with God. He refused, firstly, to be daunted by the prosperity of the wicked. He refused to worship the gift rather than the giver. He refused to succumb to the spirit of the age. He said, in effect, I've got something better, and he did have something better. And put that into New Testament terms, the Christian always has something better. The Lord Jesus in John 14 says that if we obey him, he will come to us, and his Father also will come to us, and they will make their abode with us. And there will be this intimacy with God through Christ, by the Spirit. That is something better than anything that the world has to offer. Well, Enoch knew something of that. And then also, uh, we see in Enoch that uh, he made a right use of his spiritual heritage. 
he refused to accept anything less than God's best. And then thirdly, we see that he was ready to remind people of the certainty of God's judgment upon sin. And by faith, he made a bold stand. Now, I suggest that there are abiding principles here for us for a close walk with God. Do you desire a close walk with God? Do you desire intimacy with God? Well, firstly, there must be a light hold upon material property and possessions. You cannot serve God and mammon. Money must be your servant, not your master. Is it the other way round? Is money your master rather than your servant? Ambition must be your servant rather than your master. But is it the other way around? Is ambition your master rather than your servant? Another world must always be in view. You notice as we read Genesis 5, there was that recurring refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death. In the midst of life, we are in death. Death is always with us. We cannot escape death. You are going to die. I am going to die unless Jesus comes. It's the one great certainty that is always with us. And we should regularly remind ourselves of that. We're just passing through. We're moving on to another world. Death will soon be with us. We must live in the light of that and hold lightly to all that this world has to offer. And then secondly, there must be, for a close walk with God, an earnest seeking and expectancy for, for more of God a recognition of what has been known, a concern to experience the truth. Don't be satisfied with head knowledge. Cry to God to make head knowledge heart knowledge. Your experience, that it becomes part of you. And we can help ourselves in that longing and that desire by uh, reminding ourselves of what has happened, what God's people have known, what is wonderfully possible. I'm told that there is a kind of aquatic spider that lives in the mud and the slime in the bottom of ponds. But amazingly, I'm told it's an air-breathing spider. And so at intervals, it comes to the surface of the pond and traps oxygen between the hairs on its body and then returns to the mud and the slime at the bottom of the pond. But the air has been trapped for survival. We live in a very slimy atmosphere. This world is a very slimy place, this present evil world. And we need spiritual oxygen to survive, and not just to survive, but uh, to thrive, as it were, spiritually. 
in this world. Well, spiritual oxygen is available to us. Let me give you just uh, one example for you to uh, take away with you. Here's some spiritual oxygen that you can take away with you. Uh, it's from uh, the 18th century, as you might expect. It's from the journal of George Whitfield, 1739, aged just 24, 24 years of age, 1739. May the 28th, preached after earnest and frequent invitation at Hackney. Uh, God was pleased to impress the truth most deeply upon the hearers. Great numbers were in tears. I could not help exposing the impiety of those letter-learned teachers who say we are not now to receive the Holy Ghost. Wednesday, May the 30th, at the request of many, I preached in the evening at Newington Common to about 15,000 people. A most commodious place was erected for me to preach. The word came with power. Friday, June the 1st, dined at Old Ford and gave a short exhortation to a few people in a field and preached in the evening at a place called Mayfair, near Hyde Park Corner. The congregation, I believe, consisted of near 80,000 people. It was by far the largest I ever preached to yet. In the time of my prayer, there was a little noise, but they kept a deep silence during my whole discourse. A high and very commodious scaffold was erected for me to stand upon, and though I was weak in myself, yet God strengthened me to speak so loud that most could hear, and so powerfully that most, I believe, could feel. All love, all glory be to God through Christ. 80,000 people. 24 years of age, yet they could all hear him. Imagine a young man, 24, standing uh, in the centre of uh, uh, the Millennium Stadium here, for example, and everybody there hearing him. Well, of course, that's supernatural. That's God. But that happened. And hundreds and thousands were converted. Saturday, June the 2nd, preached in the evening to about 10,000 hackney. I went out to preach, and I was very sick and weak, but power was given me from above, so that I continued preaching for an hour and a half. It rained some considerable time, but almost all were unmoved, and I was so enlarged by talking of the love and free grace of Jesus Christ that I could have continued my discourse till midnight. This promise, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, is fulfilled in me daily. O oh, free grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, there we are. What God has done. What a comfort. What an encouragement. What spiritual oxygen it is to us as we dwell in this slime and the mud and the filth of this world. And then, thirdly, we see the third great principle here from Enoch. There must be no trifling with sin. Our lives, and wherever possible, our lips must declare that God hates sin, that God takes sin seriously, that God judges sin, 
that the final judgment day is coming and the only place of safety there will be in Jesus Christ. Without him, there will be nothing but condemnation. There will be nothing but the pains and torments of hell forever and forever. There must be no trifling with sin. Evan Roberts, the young man used in the 1904-05 revival here in Wales, uh, before that revival broke out, he knew uh, very unusual seasons of communion with God uh, from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. And then he would be able to have a little sleep and then he'd be awoken again at 9 o'clock until midday or 1 o'clock in communion with God, taken up in communion with God. And the great burden that came out of that communion was this message as he preached. If there is anything that you know or fear to be a sin in your life, get rid of it. If you want a close walk with God, if there is anything that you know or fear to be a sin in your life, get rid of it. That relationship that you need to put right, put it right. Do it. Take action. That secret thing that you are indulging in, in the secret place that only God knows about. You know about it. Nobody else knows about it. But God knows. Deal with it. It's an abomination in his sight. It's sin. Get rid of it. If need be, get help to get rid of it. But get rid of it. The resentment the bitterness that you feel towards somebody that you've allowed to go on and on possibly year after year, deal with it. Get rid of it. There'll be no close walk with God unless you do. Do not trifle with sin. That's what we take from Enoch. He declared that God was against sin that God judges sin. He was an Old Testament saint. If Enoch, as an Old Testament saint, as an Old Testament believer, could know such intimacy with God through the exercise of faith, how much more you and me, who have the full High noon gospel lights. We must, of course, see such intimacy in New Testament terms. And here the uh, hymn writer helps us. Jesus, thy boundless love to me, no thought can reach, no tongue declare. O oh, knit my thankful heart to thee and reign without a rival there. Thine holy, thine alone I am. Be thou alone my constant flame. That's intimacy with God. O oh, grant that nothing in my soul may dwell but thy pure love alone. O oh, may thy love possess me whole, my joy, my treasure and my crown. Strange flames far from my heart remove my every act worth thought. Be loved. That's intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. And then Charles Wesley. He never fails in this realm to tell us what it's all about. 
Thou hidden source of calm repose, Thou all-sufficient love divine, My help and refuge from my foes, Secure I am if thou art mine, And lo, from sin and grief and shame, I hide me, Jesus, in thy name. Jesus, my all in all thou art, My rest in toil, my ease in pain, The medicine of my broken heart in war, My peace in loss, my gain, My smile beneath the tyrant's frown, in shame, my glory and my crown. In want, my plentiful supply. In weakness, my almighty power. In bonds, my perfect liberty. My light in Satan's darkest hour. My help and stay, where'er I call. My life in death, my heaven, my all. That's intimacy with God. And for that, hold lightly to this world and all that this world has to offer. Remember our spiritual heritage, what's wonderfully, gloriously possible. Remember the judgment day and God's hatred of sin.